Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Well, it's, it's good to be with you, and we're in part four. And, um, and uh, we're talking, uh, today we're going to talk about fact or fiction. We've never really, I don't recall ever a message really dealing with this topic while I've been here in the 25 years that I've been here. I don't mean we, we haven't said anything about it, but uh, not the way we are, uh, not, not the way we're going to uh, at this time. And so um, here's what I want to encourage you. In this series, you'll notice that we're laying a, a very strong foundation, and there's a, a reason for that, uh, because if, if you were to listen to the global gathering uh, address that I had on Friday. We, we had a church renewal global gathering and with um, over a thousand people, well over a thousand people from around the world. And uh, I gave an address uh, to prepare for the gathering storm. And if you want to, you can, you can go back to the, you can go back to the, uh, just to the church renewal website. And there's a tab there that says Global Gathering, November the 19th, 2021. You click that and, and you, can, uh, you can play the entire thing. And uh, there's, it's about an hour and a half and it's got worship music uh, from uh, three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. And, uh, and testimonies, fantastic testimonies and the worship and just uh, and some prayer and, and just a variety of things and then the address as well. And uh, you're welcome to go there. But you will see what, uh, what I'm feeling inside when you listen to that. Uh, there's a tremendous urgency that's growing in, uh, in leaders around the, around the world as we see uh, a storm that's gathering. Now, don't get alarmed and don't be fearful. Um, there's a storm coming, no question about it. Scripture warned that it would come. It is coming. But we don't have to fear, because the thing that I like about storms is, do you know what it is? They always pass. They never last. So they're tough when you're going through it. But then you come out on the other side. And so uh, there's a gathering storm, but we don't have to fear. However, we do have to batten down the hatches. We do have to board up the windows um, and the doorways, uh, because it's going to be severe. And we're just feeling the winds, the headwinds are increasing uh, at this time. And, um, and, and so there's a lot at stake. So what I'm talking about, for some of you, uh, if you're my generation or older, if you might be tempted to think, like, I believe this already. Like, what's the big deal? However, I don't want you to think about yourself. I want you to think about your children, and I want you to think about your grandchildren. They are the ones that are going to have to stand in this storm, for sure. Maybe, maybe all of us. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's moving so quickly, but certainly they will. And when push comes to shove, and there's a lot on the line, that's when, uh, that's when the temptation comes. That, that's when you start to wonder if the things you've been believing are worth believing. Is that true? That's when it'll be tested. It's easy to believe what you believe when you're sitting in a chair here. That's easy. Anybody can do that. It's quite another thing to believe when you're in the storm itself, 
in a cancel culture where your beliefs and your stands actually might affect your promotions, your job, job security, popularity, friendships, etc., etc. That's a whole different thing. That's when you start to say, do I really, really believe this? Am I willing? Willing to stand on this? Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? So that's why we're talking about what we're uh, talking. Now, uh, there's an increasing number of people who say that many stories of Genesis are fictional. Adam and Eve, for example. Um, the talking serpent, the flood, and so on. There's, there's many, and, and throughout the scriptures. But especially in uh, Genesis 1 to 11, for whatever reason, they, they picked those 11 chapters. And they do so because it either messes with their theories of beginnings, such as Adam and Eve being created versus being evolved, uh, evolved from, uh, from animals, or they are embarrassed by stories like a talking serpent, because we all know that serpents don't talk, or they fear cancel culture, as I already referred to. But as we'll see, there's much at stake in what we believe here. Uh, 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 there are good reasons, even, even though there's a lot at stake here, there's good reasons for affirming the stories of Genesis that they're based on historical reality or fact. And so we're going to look at the internal biblical evidence for that only. There's external evidence and, uh, for it as well. Just on the internal, I have three messages worth. But I know none of you will stay that long. So I spent most of my time paring it down and trying to make it palatable. Now there's a lot of points, there's a lot of passages. I'm, I put as much of it as I could on the screen. The good thing is that we've got recordings and you can always go back, right? And uh, I would strongly urge you to do that. Use that even for your devotional time. There's nothing sinful about doing that. Uh, because we're talking about God's Word and we have to know what we believe and really believe it. Because our, our lives and our families are going to depend on it in the days to come. Isn't that true? But as we do, don't forget the storm what? Passes. And Jesus is coming. It's going to pass when Jesus comes. Is that true? Absolutely. So here we go. Are you ready to dig in? Don't sit and hope something hits you in the face. You're going to have to dig in with me. We're going to do it together. All right. Lord, help us in this. We trust you in this. And um, Lord, take over from my flimsy attempts here and help us to be able to build a solid foundation on you as revealed in your eternal holy word. In Jesus' name, and everybody agreed by saying, Amen. Number one, Adam and Eve were real historical people. Those who believe that Genesis 1 to 11 are myth or allegory say that Genesis doesn't intend to teach us a historical Adam or Eve. And part of the reason they do that has to do with the whole evolutionary theory, shall I say, hypotheses. And uh, we come from animals. And we were already talking about that in the previous weeks, uh, though not in depth. 
However, the evidence points us in the opposite direction. There's the uses of the word Adam. They say, well, the word Adam can, can be a, just a generic word. And so it just speaks of all people, or it speaks, uh, and so, but, but Genesis actually uses it in three ways. And we all use it this way. Uh, they say that because the word for man in Genesis is Adam, there isn't an historical person whose name was Adam. However, the, the word man or Adam can be, the word man comes from the word Adam. You see, you see the problem? So not every time that you read in Hebrew, Adam, is it the name Adam? Sometimes it's referring to a man. Sometimes it's referring to mankind, people generically, and sometimes it refers to a person by the name of Adam. Does that make sense? All three. Are you with me so far? Because I don't want to lose yet, number one, because then we're in trouble. Okay? So, as a generic noun, God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created male, male and female, he created them. There, that's a generic noun, true? Referring to all people, man or mankind, okay? And, and so it is sometimes used that way, and I just showed you, and I agree with that. When we refer to all people, we say that. The grammar and the context tells us that. Here's the second usage, common, the common noun. Uh, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds. Oh, then we know it's a, a specific individual male. Would you agree? Yes? And so we see sometimes it is used like that in Genesis. And then the third one is the proper name. The man, and the word behind it is Adam, gave names to all his livestock and birds of the heavens, every beast of the field. But for Adam, now there's no article there, there was no there was not found a, help, uh, a helper fit for him. It's in the singular. So it can't, it's not referring here to generic all people. It's referring to a certain individual who has that name. Does that make sense? So sometimes it's used this way, sometimes it's used this way, and sometimes it's used this way. Does it, do you agree? It's very, very straightforward. Listen to me. I said this in, a, I said this in an intro uh, recently. It's easy to tear a house down. It's, more, it's much more difficult to build it up. Don't be very careful what you're listening to online and what you're reading. Be very, very careful. They'll throw these kinds of red herrings out at you, and you'll go, oh yeah, there is a verse that it's used generically. I guess it is always used generically. No, it is not. Okay? There was a historical Adam. Okay, number, number two. Adam's genealogical descendants are named along with him. The first of ten human genealogies in Genesis. Genesis is structured by a phrase the generations of. And it shows up 10 times when referring to humans. The whole book is structured like that. So it has a genealogy, then some narrative, then a genealogy, some narrative. And those narratives are linked to the genealogies, and genealogies are real, they're historical, they're true, factual. Do you see what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Okay, 
if you don't understand something, just, uh, just say so. Just shout out, raise your hand, or something like that. Come running up here. Uh, Genesis chapter 5 says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. There's the first one. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And, f and all of chapter 5 is like that. And it's interspersed with historical narratives and ends up with the flood. So it shows us how we got from why the flood came in Genesis 4 and 5. It gives the generations, then it tells us why the flood came. Things got so evil. We talked about that. Number three, Paul feared that the Corinthians um, would be... Oh, I, I better go back there. Adam is named right along with Seth and Enosh. If Adam isn't a real historical person, then neither are the others in that genealogy. True? Then you've got to wipe them all out. You've got to be consistent with your argument. I can tell you're with me. That's awesome. I'm proud of you. <laughs> If Adam, um, uh, then by what rationale can we consider any of the ten genealogies of Genesis to be real historical people, uh, like Abraham and Isaac and, and uh, Jacob and so on? Number two, or number three, Paul feared that the Corinthians would be led astray like Eve was. And 2 Corinthians 11 says, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, Paul believed that the serpent and Eve were real. You can tell from what he's writing here. Is that true? Uh, they were real historical beings and that the temptation as recorded in Genesis really happened. How else can you explain Paul's very real worry that the Corinthians would be led astray from Christ? If the serpent is myth, then who exactly is it that's going to lead them astray? Huh? <laughs> What's the worry? You see, he did believe it. Let's try another one. Paul linked Adam with the historical person of Moses. Nevertheless, it says in Romans 5.14, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Now, the fact that Paul links Adam with a historical person of Moses, proves that he viewed Adam as a historical person as well. He wouldn't go from a mythological, he wouldn't go like, as death reigned from Santa Claus to Moses. Right? He wouldn't go from a fictional or mythological figure to a historical real one. Do you do that? No, that's nonsense. Fifth, Paul contrasted Adam's actions with Jesus' actions. Take a look at Romans 5, 17. It says, for if because of one man's, or Adam's, trespass, death reigned through that one man. So from Adam, you get trespass, you get, trespass, you get death, right? Adam trespassed death, right? Then... He says, much more will those receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So one man's trespass brought death. Adam trespassed death. Jesus, gift of righteousness, what? Life. Same way. 
He's contrasting two historical people here. And he's not, he's not going with a kind of a fictional, mythological idea somewhere in, this, in the sky. It's real, all right. And he's, contrast, he's contrasting that. So, if Adam is a mythological figure, because remember, Adam, trespass, what? Death. If he's mythological, then where did sin really come from? Then it didn't come from him. Because sin is real and it can't come from a fictional individual. From an, just from an idea. Would you agree? Then, it, then where did sin come from? And if sin didn't really come from Adam and spread to all of us, then why should we take seriously Paul's declaration that the one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life? <laughs> so if sin didn't actually come from Adam, because it was not really an Adam, then what assurance do we have that the gift of justification and life came from Jesus? True? And if um, sin didn't come from, through Adam to the human race, then sin didn't come the way Paul said it did. Would you agree with that? If it didn't actually come like that, then sin didn't come the way Paul said it came. And led us to believe it came, in which case, Paul is a false teacher. Let's just say it. Then the apostle is a false teacher, and I don't know why you're sitting here this morning. And I don't know why I'm here. And to what purpose? If he really didn't know, if Paul really didn't know how sin came into the world, why not just say so? Well, he could have said something like this. Though we don't really know how sin got here, Jesus is still the answer to the sin, death, and condemnation. At least then you're being honest. True? But I know there's none of you here that believes it like that. I'm just trying, I'm trying to build a solid foundation. Do we really believe this or don't we? There's no doubt that Paul was contrasting two real historical men here, and I doubt there's a person in this room that doesn't believe that. Secondly, let's talk about the serpent in the garden, because that's embarrassing to some. And they want, they want eternal life, and they, but they don't want to be embarrassed. Genesis 3 says, The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you should not eat of the tree of the garden? Now some say, and I've read, I've, I've read lots on this. Some say this is clearly fictitious because you can't have a talking serpent. Well, here's several reasons why I strongly disagree. Number one, it's not the only time in Scripture that we see an animal talking. Who else? Where else do we see an animal talking? Balaam. Yes, exactly. Oh, you know your Bibles. Balaam. Exactly. Maybe we should throw that one out too or turn that into a fictional story. That whole story. Number two, demons inhabited animals elsewhere. Jesus exercised many demons from people. And one day he encountered two men who were possessed by demons, legion, right? 
And the demon, when he was about to cast them out, the demons talked through the people and said, cast us in, would you please cast us into the what? Exactly. And that was the end of the hog industry in that region. <laughs> right? Pork, the pork industry was done. They turned to fish after that. Notice the demons spoke through the men and they requested to possess animals. And of course we know Satan himself entered Judas. Scripture says that. Now either he did or he didn't. Which is it? Number four, the New Testament writers identify the spirit inhabiting the serpent as Satan. Uh, John says, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. These facts prove that a talking serpent doesn't make it fictitious. Not at all. Listen to me. <laughs> like, I, I, I just don't get it. We believe that God created everything. I mean, we, we, we talked about in the, first, in the first one and a half messages in this series, right? We, we deduced it even logically and scientifically. We said matter can't be eternal. It had to have a start. Remember that? We talked about that. And then we said, so matter, which most religions say is eternal, can't be eternal. And the scripture tells us it's the only religion that believes, Christian, you know, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, that God is the cause behind it. True? God is the cause. If he can make all that, why can't he intervene in what he's made? Help me understand that. Are, are the miracles in what he created bigger than the creation of the universe, it's the cosmos itself? <laughs> That's impossible. They're tiny. Most of them are tiny in comparison. A talking serpent? Really? That's no big deal. And scripture says that. All right. The Old Testament prophets, this third one, and New Testament apostles believed Noah and the flood were real. Isaiah said over 2,000 years after, after the flood, then God, speaking through Isaiah, promised Judah that his judgment against them would, uh, would abate as surely as his judgment of the world by flood had abated. Okay? There again. You get this comparison. This happened over here, and just like that, this is going to happen over here. That happens over and over in Scripture. And Isaiah did it as well. Well, it was God speaking through Isaiah. We know that. There's, there's always the human component and the divine God component, right? Isaiah 54, 9 says, This is like the days of Noah to me. This is God speaking through Isaiah. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I've sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. Their hope was that God had stopped. This is what God was saying to Isaiah. And, and remember, Isaiah was prophesying before they went into Babylonian exile. That's the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom had already been gone into exile after 19 wicked kings in a row um, uh, in 722 BC. Isaiah was prophesying partly to that northern kingdom, and then they, then they were gone, 
and also to the southern kingdom, which went into Babylonian exile in 586 BC. So maybe 100, 100, roughly 150 years later, okay? And at that time, out of the 20 kings that the southern kingdom had, only six were reasonably good. Three of them were very good. There was three revivals. Um, Uzziah, Hezekiah, and uh, Josiah. Those, those, those three. And Isaiah, and then came Jeremiah, a little after him, about 100 years down. And he, and he is saying, you're going into exile for your sins. Uh, Manasseh was one of them in the southern kingdom. You're going into exile. Judgment is coming. But then God had a word of encouragement for them. Just as I stopped the judgment of the world eventually, that's the flood, so I'm going to stop judgment on you. That's hopeful, isn't it? But if it's based on on a fictitious story of Santa Claus, what kind of hope is that? The hope was a real hope for one reason and one reason only, because God had done it once before in history. Well, actually, he'd done it more than that, but he was comparing it to that one, and he was saying, the way I did it there, I will do it again. And that gave them Hope. That's the hope you and I have. That the way he acted before in history, that's how he's going to act in the future. If he didn't act like that in the, in the past, then what hope do we have that he'll do anything in the future? Huh? What kind of hope is that? It isn't. It's a false hope. So, Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, ministered over 100 years after Isaiah, uh, he prophesied, he, he, was, he was contemporary of Daniel. Uh, once they went into exile, in the Babylonian exile, then he prophesied, Ezekiel and Daniel. They both prophesied at that time. And he placed Noah in the same category of righteousness as Daniel and Job. He said, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, who he was a contemporary of, and Job were in Jerusalem, they would, not, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. If Noah was mythological, then so were Daniel and Job. For Ezekiel lumps them together. And if Daniel and Job were historical, then so was Noah. Ezekiel didn't mix fictional and historical figures together. He's talking about real people. True? And then, of course, there's uh, Moses. I won't even go into that. We'll skip ahead to David as I'm watching the time here. When, uh, I don't know why I watch the time, because <laughs> I don't do anything about it anyway. But, <laughs> I was just kidding. When God spoke to Noah, uh, let's talk about David uh, now. When God spoke to Noah about the coming judgment, he said that it would be a mighty flood of waters. And the Hebrew word he uses is mabul. I don't know if I pronounced that right or not. The word for flood, mabul, applies only to the 
the flood of Noah. Other floods were denoted by various other Hebrew words. This word is related to an Assyrian word meaning, and get this word, destruction. It wasn't just an ordinary flood. It was a destructive flood, and there was only one word used for that kind of flood. And since Mabul is only found in Psalm 29.10, outside of Genesis 6.9, the cataclysmic activity poetically described by the psalmist must also refer to the flood of Noah's time. And this is what, this is what uh, the psalmist says. The Lord sits enthroned over the Mabul, the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. He's over judgment. He's over everything. Nothing is out of God's control. Are you glad about that? <laughs> I talked about the gathering storm. It's coming. No question about it. But you know what, what thrills me about it? Well, it doesn't exactly thrill me. But I am relieved to know that there's someone who's in control and won't let it get further than what he allows, as he did with Job. That's a relief. Okay, and the final one is Peter. The Apostle Peter's reference to Noah, the ark, and the flood reveal his belief in the historicity of the flood. He said, uh, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. And he talks about it again in 2 Peter chapter uh, 3. Anyway, Jesus, number four, Jesus believed that, the, that Genesis is factual. On six different occasions, Jesus himself referred to the first seven chapters of Genesis, thus affirming his belief in their historical nature. In the first one, we'll just look at a couple, uh, just as samples. Look at this one about the blood of Abel. In his seven denunciations, or woes, you know the woes to the scribes and the Pharisees, woe are you, uh, that sort of thing, Jesus indicted them for killing the prophets. So here, that's the background, and, and that's what we're going to read right now in Matthew. Therefore, I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Jesus is saying this to the religious leaders of his days, of his day. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. He was, he was prophesying what would happen to the apostles and the early church, Stephen being the first martyr there. Abel's the first martyr in scripture, but Stephen's the first martyr in the, in the church. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel. Stop right there. Who's Abel? He's the son of Adam, Adam and Eve. Exactly. Cain killed Abel. To the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Now, when he refers to the blood of Zechariah, that's coming out of a passage in Chronicles. Now, the Chronicles, we have First and Second Chronicles, but it used to be one book. And in the, in the Hebrew Old Testament, the Masoretic text, it was the last book of the Old Testament. Now, do you see the significance of what he's saying? He's saying, from the blood of Abel in Genesis, almost the beginning of Genesis, to the blood you spilt 
with Zechariah at the end of Chronicles, the end of the Old Testament scriptures, and everything in between, you have been guilty of that. That's what he's saying. It encompasses all of Old Testament biblical history. So Abel was the first person murdered, Zechariah's the last. Now, it would be ludicrous. Think about this. It would be ludicrous to think that Jesus would denounce the religious leaders for the killing of a mythological person. True? I mean, if, if Abel, he's, I mean, he, he's right there in chapter 3, in chapter 4, actually, is where he's murdered. And that's in the first 11 chapters of, you know, it's right at the start of it. It's right in between all these things that are disputed. It'd be ludicrous for, for Jesus to be denouncing the Pharisees for killing a fictitious person. That's bizarre. And so we can see that Jesus really believed in the historicity of the, the Old Testament, including Genesis. Second, the days of Noah. What did Jesus believe about that? When the disciples asked Jesus what the sign of his coming in the end of the age would be, he launched into a lengthy discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. Sometimes we've talked a little bit about that here. At one point, Jesus compared how things will be right before his coming to how things were right before the flood. You know this passage very well. You've read it many times. As it was, Matthew 24, as it was in the days of who? Who? As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the? As it was with Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? Jesus. He used that designation for himself more, by far more than any other designation. And in this series, we'll probably park on that and talk about that some, why he did that. For in the days before the flood, and by the way, notice the word there, cataclysman. Does that word sound familiar? We get our English word what? Cataclysm from that. Cataclysman. People were, he's saying it's a catastrophe. It's like that mabul in, he, in Hebrew. Because that word is only used of the of Noah's flood. That word is never used. When Jesus talks about, you know, uh, the rains came down, you know, the, the, the wise man and the, and the foolish man, they built their house on the sand and the rock, and the, and the rains came down, and the floods came up, the rains came down. Well, and uh, when he talks about that, the floods there, he used a different word. But when they talk about the Noah's flood, then they use this cataclysmon. This cataclysmic, destructive thing that took place. Same thing. It's amazing, isn't it? He said, for as in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying, giving marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood, flood cataclysmon again, came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Same thing. And... Um, and this is, uh, and Jesus told them plainly that in the days leading up to the return, people would be going about their business as in Noah's day. 
And he warned them that just as judgment came in Noah's day, so you could count on it that judgment was coming again when he would return. Now, people don't like that word judgment today. I'm telling you, Jesus said, as there was judgment there, there's judgment coming again. And we're in a period of tremendous grace right now. Is that true? Yeah. And the reason we should be concerned about judgment coming is because there was a real one that took place. That's what Jesus is saying. So you see that comparison again. But if, if he's talking about a judgment that never happened, then what? Then why worry? Why worry? Be happy. There's no judgment coming. Never came before. That's what, they, that's what Peter talked about in 2 Peter 3. Where is this promise of his coming? Everything continues as it always has. That's what, that's what Peter said, right? And so that's what's going to happen. Just as judgment happened in the past, so it'll happen in the future. And if Jesus' comparison to the days of Noah is allegorical, then what assurance do we have that his return isn't just an allegory? Not just, the judge, not just judgment, but he said he's going to come back. If, he, if that's just an allegory, if that's just fictitious, then what assurance do we really have that he's coming back? And if he's not really, we're not sure that he's really coming back, then why put everything on the line? Why have Christians died for the faith? Millions of them, and they continue to do it today. Why do it? It's not really going to happen. <laughs> so, this is what I said to our pastors. So go home and get drunk. That's what I said to our pastors. If you don't believe this, close your Bibles, go home and get drunk and let live. That's what, that's what Jesus said. Now, it sounds kind of crass the way I put it, but I'm trying to <laughs> shake us here a little bit. Do we believe what we say we believe? I don't really want you to go get drunk, so please don't go and tell everybody. I can see there's new rumor coming. But I'm used to that. So, so are you. Okay. Uh, number five. Other New Testament writers believe that Genesis is factual. The faith heroes of Hebrews chapter 11. It's, it's interesting. There's 15 mentioned by name in Hebrews chapter 11. The first three are straight out of the early part of Genesis. Uh, Genesis 4 and 5. And um, Abel, Enoch, and Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events not seen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The Hebrews writer clearly believed in an historical Noah and flood. Now, if these, if these three, Abel, Enoch, and Noah, are mythical, then the cloud of witnesses just shrunk by three. Because when you go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, this is what it says. I, I, it's too bad about the chapter division there. Because Genesis, I mean, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, simply can't, carries on with he what Hebrews 11 was saying. All these 
these people in the hall of faith. And this is what he calls them. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by the, the word therefore in the verse 1 connects it grammatically to the section before it. And he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, those are that cloud of witnesses. He says, let us throw off everything that hinders and that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance race uh, marked out for us. They're watching. Apparently, they're watching. And then it goes on to say that the greatest person of faith is not in, in Hebrews 11. It then goes on, it says, set your eye on Jesus, the, the author and perfecter of our faith. It says he's the number one. He's, he's, he's the best one. Anyway, that's a little aside. Now, if these figures are fictional, these first three then there's no one in the heavenly stands. Because he's not mixing fictional and historical people. They're either all fictional or they're all historical. And if they are fictional, then there isn't a cloud of witnesses. There's nobody in the heavenly stands cheering. And the whole race isn't worth running. Do you see what I'm saying? There's a lot, there's a lot riding on what we believe here. Okay, and then we can look at Jude's reference to Cain. I'm just going to skip over that. You can look at it yourself in uh, Jude chapter 1 verse 11. And then the New Testament writers often referenced Genesis. Genesis is foundational for the New Testament. At least 200 quotations and allusions are found there with um, uh, uh, to Genesis in the New Testament. Over a hundred of them come from Genesis 1 to 11 alone. Genesis is foundational for the understanding of the entire scriptures. It's foundational. Rip Genesis out and you just, you just knocked out the entire foundation. And I just showed you a little bit how. And we're, and we're not finished. Uh, quite. So, let's wrap it up like this. <clears throat> Why is this so important? We've already seen some reasons why it's important, but there's more at stake here. Obviously, there's the thing we said about being led astray as Eve, then there isn't really a devil, there isn't really a tempter, there is no such thing. We shouldn't worry about it. Then there isn't a judgment coming then there is no relief from judgment coming. Uh, that we already saw. But here's the next one. The gospel is at stake. If all the supernatural elements found in Genesis 1 to 11 are to be considered as myth by virtue of their miraculous qualities or because they act outside the realm of naturalism, then every other miraculous event recorded in the rest of the Old Testament and New Testament may then logically be considered myth for the same reasons. If that isn't true, then neither is the rest of it. Then, I mean, why would you believe that the other miraculous events are true? Why would you believe that any of Jesus' miracles are true? Huh? It doesn't make any sense. 
if we relegate all those events as myth, then there is no logical reason to retain the biggest miracle of them all, which, which is the birth, death, and resurrection of the God-man Jesus. Just stop for a minute. You think a talking serpent is a big deal? I, I know you do. This is a rhetorical question because I know what you think. But think about it. You think that a talking serpent is a big deal? I'll tell you what's a big deal. Listen to this story. Okay, there's this God. He's the cause of the whole universe. He even created man and woman. He created mankind, human, humans. And then one day he decided that he was going to become... He, 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 he created a woman, and he said, I'm going to be conceived inside that woman. This is the God of eternity who made the woman. I'll be conceived in that woman. And then, after nine months, she gives birth to him, and then raises him, and trains the God of the universe, who is all-wise and all-powerful and everything, as we already discussed. And then one day... He dies. God, who's been in eternity, dies. And then he rises from the dead. You think a talking serpent is a big deal? You think that the flood is a big deal? That is child's play in a sandbox. That's all that is. The God of the universe doing that, now that is a story that you have to grapple with. You see what I'm saying? That is an incredible story. Now, we are actually going to come to that story at some point in, in, in the grand story. We're going to come to it and we're going to talk about that. It's going to be exciting. If we relegate this other stuff to myth, we have no gospel whatsoever. Paul said it. He said, if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then, you, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have no hope in this life only, we are of all people more to be what? More to be what? Exactly. What fools. This is all a big bad joke. We are to be pitied for we aren't forgiven. We are to be pitied because we won't be resurrected. We are to be pitied because we're not going to heaven, as Jesus said. And yet, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. <laughs> Do you believe that? Well, if you believe that, you've got to believe the rest of it. Number two, the scriptures are at stake. Not as only, uh, only is the gospel at stake. The scriptures are at stake. If Genesis isn't factual, then the words of the prophets and apostles aren't trustworthy and true. For they believed, as I've demonstrated, that these counts are factual. And they said so. They based their ministries and their lives, by the way, many of them died for it, on the fact that it was true. If their words aren't trustworthy, then neither are their moral teachings and laws. Or the moral teachings and laws they espouse. Do you see where this is going now? Huh? 
Do you see now why Christians are caving, so-called Christians are caving all over the place? Because if it isn't really true, if those things aren't actually factual, if they're, if they're, if they're fictional, if they're mythological, then I'm not sure that those moral teachings and laws are true either. Because they, they said it was. They said it was true. If it isn't, now I can't trust them. If I can't trust them, now I don't trust their moral teachings either. And you know what? The world is, the world has decided to come up with its own moral absolutes. And they are, live as you like and you better agree with us. And if you don't agree with us, you lose your job. Cancel culture. Is that true? L listen to me. Are you really willing to pay a price to follow Jesus if this isn't actually true? Do you see what we're, what we're wrestling with here? We're talking life and death here. Then let's not do it. Let's not pretend. Let's go live and let live. It's either true or it's not. <laughs> we can't have it both ways. Then scripture's teachings about our identities about abortion, about sexual ethics, about marriage, and so on, they're not trustworthy. Why would you stand on those beliefs in a cancel culture? Why be persecuted if these things aren't really so? This is the storm that I'm talking about. This is the storm that's coming against us. What I'm asking you is, is your faith strong? Do you know what you believe and why? That's what this is about. And lastly, Jesus is at stake. If the first Adam is only an allegory, then by logic, so is the second Adam. If man did not really fall into sin, then there is no need of a savior. Then Jesus is himself a deceiver or one who was deceived, in which case he isn't God. Do you see where this is going? But it is true. Hallelujah. It is true. We learned that matter isn't eternal. It was caused. We looked at some convincing signs that God was the cause. It's logical that if he made us as social creatures that he himself must be social for he cannot be less than what he has made. True? In that case, it's logical that he wanted to relate to us and communicate with us, and he did. In interacting with what he had created in re with real people in real time, in real history, and that was recorded in here. And we can believe that. <laughs> wow. Wow. There he explained what went wrong in creation and why he allowed it. You know, the whole love thing that we talked about. In the scriptures, he explained how he would fix it. Through the greatest miracle of all, by sending his son to fix it. And we're going to get to that part in the story. There is so much overwhelming evidence that it actually happened. 
That's why we believe it. It actually happened. That's why people are willing to die for their faith. Because it actually happened. And we're going to talk about that. And if you can believe in the miracle of creation by God, then those other ones are nothing by comparison. There's a storm coming against the church unlike anything we've known experientially. Like an approaching hurricane, the edges of it have already arrived. The wind speeds are increasing. Pandemic, economic woes, cancel culture, loss of religious freedoms. We have to prepare by getting our belief systems in order or we won't stand in the winds that are coming. Jesus, in fact, predicted that. He said in Matthew 24, 10, he said, many will fall away from the faith. You can't fall away from something you weren't at. Do you see what I'm saying? And I've seen many fall away from the faith already. So have you. Many. Many. There's many more going to. And it's because they never really knew what they believed. It's easy just to sit in church. See what I'm saying? But this is what I want to leave you with. Take heart, brothers and sisters. Because though the storm is going to be severe, it's, Jesus said it's going to be short. And then he's going to come back. And just like he stilled the winds and the waves way back there, and he did, it's not a myth, it's not a fictional story. He did, because he's God. It was a picture of the way he stilled it there. He's the Lord of the cosmos. He's going to still that fierce storm that we're heading into. Amen? <laughs> it's temporary. We can stand if we keep our eyes fixed on him. Amen? If you look at the circumstances around like Peter did, you're going to sink. Keep your eyes fixed on him, church. Keep your eyes fixed on him. And we'll ride out the storm together. And we'll get to the other side. Amen and amen. God bless you.